Hello everybody, it's Alice Strange again, here with Magic in the Mind podcast, where spirituality and psychology intersect. I hope you are strapped in, ready to go on this episode, this highly scientific psychology type episode, um, because we're getting into the deep, the deep stuff. Attachment styles. Hi guys! Before we get too far into it, I want to say hi. Um, how are you doing? It's a gloomy freaking <laughs> December day here um, at my headquarters and it's gross. It's been raining all day. It's, it's not fun to go outside. <laughs> um, but I hope you're cozy somewhere or warm in your car or whatever it is. Make yourself cozy. Get all ready. Um, we're going to dive into attachment styles and how to heal them. I hope you're ready. I hope you've brought your notebook along to take some notes. I would. I definitely would. Anyways... Here we go. Enjoy. So, talking about attachment styles, there are four different attachment styles, um, and they are named differently um, for children and adults, Um, and we'll kind of talk about that in a little bit, but um, I'm going to lay them out for you. Um, There's a style called anxious attachment. That is a child's label. But if you continue to have that problem as an adult, it is preoccupied. Our next one is avoidant. That's a child's label. As an adult, it's called dismissive. And there's disorganized in a child, which you grow up to be fearful, avoidant in adults. And then there's a secure attachment. And that is just across the board for everybody who is a secure attached person, no matter what age. And it's kind of interesting. Um, Attachment styles are kind of a rabbit hole you can go down, way down. Uh, But the thing about it is attachment styles don't just vanish at some certain age. You know, unlike most other developmental psychological factors, usually it's very planned out in uh, strict guidelines on that. Or, well, I don't say strict because like everybody has a different opinion, but your attachment style changes throughout your life. It is known to stem from the original relationship with your caregivers, your parents or guardians. So as you experience different things in life, it can change. So this is called an internal working model. The attachment style with your original caregivers sets the framework and guides how we see the world and future interactions with others. So yeah, they do change. And there can be more than one attachment style in different relationships because of different working models. 
So you could feel one way about your parents and then have a different attachment style to your best friend or to your relationship. You could have different for all of them. Some people have a very strict, well-defined, in-the-guidelines style of attachment. Others can have a blend of styles or have, you know, a few different styles all blended together in different ways. Um, But an attachment style in and of itself uh, kind of involves a person's comfort and confidence in their close relations, relationships. Um, It also is very heavily dependent on their ability to handle being rejected, the amount of yearning for intimacy, and their preference for an independent life or distance between them and others. Completely made up of thoughts of self and others, in summary, but All of those things do count into it. So I found this wonderful website. I had written so much, but I was feeling like it was kind of lacking a little bit. And I found a website um, that really just laid everything out so well on their definitions of each style. Um, So I kind of took her little descriptions and... um, modified them, added a few things I gathered other places, you know, just kind of just tweaked them a little bit. Um, And I have so heavily used information from that article. I'm literally going to cite it in the in the description box. I'm going to cite my source. Uh, The website was called Mind Body Green, but it was a branch off of Mind Body Green that was MBG relationships or something like that but um the author of the article uh was dr carla manley i hope that's the right name um or the right pronunciation but yes we will i will put that article in the description so you can go there and read it through fully there will be so many resources for this podcast but you know what that just means it's more legit right anyway Uh, so secure attachments, a partner with secure attachment tends to have a fairly high level of self-esteem because their parents did good and, um, the child was given appropriate attention, uh, and love and care as a child. Those with secure attachment style tend to feel confident in themselves and they can have very healthy relationships. They're not afraid of intimacy and have the capacity to be both independent and interdependent. They're comfortable helping and being helped. Uh, They also tend to be emotionally available, grounded, and non-reactive. On that note, saying securely attached people are emotionally available, grounded, and non-reactive, it kind of tends to paint this picture of the lucky child, the the special, oh, you didn't experience any trauma kind of child. But they find that many secure adults have had hard life experiences, but have self-reflected 
and assigned positive value to relationships in general. So they have these reasons to be scared, those triggers and those things there, but their brain for some reason is just working in a different way where they see everything they've experienced and they just kind of say, yeah, yeah, I'm better for it. I think relationships in general are a good life experience. Like, what? <laughs> like, that's, it's a little crazy to me um, because usually when you, okay, side tangent, when you look at mental illness, it usually is triggered by something. Not always, of course, definitely not always. And there are like genetic factors and stuff, but generally it's trauma related. Very often it is trauma related. And to think that the best attachment style out there, people still have trauma. They still have experienced terrible things. Their brains just work different. Like, I don't know. That's a crazy kind of little revolutionary thought. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, continuing on secure attached people. Um, people with secure attachment styles can be triggered now and again. When two securely attached people are in a relationship, of course, arguments happen, but not often. And often they heal over very smoothly. They, they just kind of talk it out and you're good. However, if a securely attached person is partners with someone who is not securely attached, ongoing issues can become normal, unfortunately. Um, so if you're the securely attached person in that relationship, just focus on keeping your securely attached self grounded. Like just hang in there, buddy. <laughs> help them through, help your partner through their own attachment style issues. So now we talk about anxious attachment. People with anxious attachment styles often have a difficult time in relationships due to the fact that they are often insatiable in their need for connection. Um, they strive for self-acceptance by seeking validation from others. Um, and usually this stems from having a more cold type relationship with your parents. Um, people with anxious attachment style often have low self-esteem, yet they tend to idolize their partners. This thing that I, I didn't Google because I only, I only can fit so much in one episode, right? Uh, but there's something they refer to called fantasy bonding, where a partner is put on a pedestal and seen as, quote, the perfect partner. And that's very common. It's kind of a... It reminds me of BPD, uh, where you have a very low self-esteem, you seek validation, you crave intimacy, um, all the while just to prove you're not a worthless piece of shit, um, even though no one else is thinking that. And then the part about putting your partner on a pedestal, um, that can happen if you're splitting in BPD and people can do long-term 
splits or they can do short-term splits. And if you are in a relationship with someone who's very good for you, um, or even not, you know, sometimes people just make the wrong choice. But if, if you like, love your partner or like them a lot, you can fantasy bond. And that's putting your partner on a pedestal. That's also splitting and saying, this is the best person that's ever lived. My whole life is about them. Everything I do has to be for and with them. I don't care who I am. I am not myself if this person is gone. That's not healthy at all. That's a BPD kind of thing. So um, just wanted to do that little side tangent. Anyways, with anxious attachment, they're often preoccupied with the relationship and this results in obsessive thought patterns. Um, they have a deep fear of being alone and losing a relationship. So the anxiously attached person may be very clingy and highly dependent. They can even struggle with dependency issues with their parents and worry about pleasing them if they don't have a partner. So that's part, that can be a thing. Um, they can be reactive where rather than sitting and thinking about what they intend to do, they just act immediately with no control over it at all. So they can be reactive and they're also usually emotionally hypersensitive and prone to accepting less than they deserve in relationships. So, you know, it's that, that really great friend of yours that just dates all the wrong guys. And I know I've made that reference somewhere else in the podcast, but you know, the girl that just dates all those assholes and you're just like, honey, please stop. I told you a week ago he was bad and here we are. You know, it's just, uh, if you could only fix someone's brain for them, I guess. <laughs> but uh, they do accept less than they deserve because they see themselves as worthless. Um, so they think like anything is better than nothing. They're often submissive, but the anxiously attached person can become aggressive if you trigger them too badly. Um, fears of pretend potential rejection or abandonment are often always lurking around the corners, even if there's no reason to suspect that a partner is unfaithful or uncommitted. Then we have dismissive avoidant. So people with dismissive avoidant style often appear independent and may have high self-esteem. They usually have a positive self-image, but a negative view of others. Yuck. They often think they are superior to others, particularly in romantic relationships. And like, guys, I'm giving you these descriptions so you can get a little idea of like what sounds like you, what doesn't. This is going to be a hard pill to swallow for some people, but you very well may be dismissive avoidant where you have high self-esteem. You say, I'm great. I'm fine. Nothing's wrong with me. But then like everybody else in the world, you just kind of, oh, God, what, look at them. Oh, uh, and you just like can't stand people. Honey, be real with yourself. All of, I want to encourage all of the audience. There's no shame here. This is a safe space. And if this is the only place you ever hear about it, look about, look at, you know, if this is it, just, just be real with yourself. Just be, do you think you're better than everybody? Anyway, um, so 
Although people with a dismissive avoidance style often seem capable of connection, they are usually very emotionally distant and hyper-independent in intimate relationships. Um, they can come off as aloof and self-focused, um, often charismatic individuals, and they prefer superficial connections and often prefer hookups and non-committed relationships. They tend to deny stress from relationships. Like if there's something's going wrong in a relationship, they, nah, that doesn't bother me. I'm fine. And they downplay achievements, finding others untrustworthy. They don't think lasting love is a possibility and also find it hard to fall in love. The ambivalent, dismissive, avoidant type puts up walls and pushes intimacy away. I think that's going to hit for some people. Next, we have the type fearful avoidant. Individuals with fearful avoidant attachment style often have substantial difficulty in romantic relationships. They may initially appear invested and capable of being connected, but they are not able to maintain a healthy connection. They often distance themselves from their partner, but unlike dismissive attachment, they continue to worry and stress over and have neediness around the relationship. So they'll put the distance there, but then they feel bad about it. Um, they usually have low self-esteem and tend to think they're not worthy of love. Uh, and they often have low regard for their partners. So they're just kind of, I suck and you suck too. Um, they prefer casual relationships. And in a relationship... They may stay in one stage of the relationship for a long time. Like, you know, relationships go in stages. You're, you move through the spectrum of different things in a relationship. And these type of people will, like, pause. <laughs> like, they will stop at the hand-holding and the kissing. And then they're like, mm, we're just going to do this forever. <laughs> and, um... Uh, it's it they don't do that because they want to but they're scared of getting serious they may have many partners to be able to get close to someone but not emotionally close meeting that need for intimacy and closeness you see how that works given the inner ambivalence the fearful avoidant type tends to create roller coaster type relationships filled with unpredictability, and dramatic conflict. Their internal world is fear-based and chaotic. This leads to abusive behaviors directed at others and themselves. This type is driven by a constant conflict between a desire to attach and a deep fear of attachment. So those were our attachment styles. Um, if you think you need to re-listen uh, again to figure out yours entirely, feel free to do that. Um, just back it up a little bit, uh, about mm, 10 minutes or so, uh, you'll, you'll get back to the beginning. Um, but we've discussed the attachment styles, and I'm making this kind of like a little crash course for you to like start 
on your healing journey with your attachment issues. Um, yeah, it, I just assume if you're going to listen to this podcast that you're into bettering yourself. <laughs> I'm not that funny. I'm not, I'm not great. Well, I, I am great. I did not just say that. I am great. I'm great. People love me, right? Uh, but what I meant to say was, I am just, you know what? Anyways, we, you see, you see that thing I did there where I put myself down and then I stopped and I corrected it. My people, my people, that's what I've been pounding into your head since day one. Change the narrative. And it has been kind of a rough day for me. So that's kind of a sign that maybe I need to take it a little easier. Maybe I need to sit back and and drink some hot apple cider. I wish, but I don't have any. But anyway, you know, you just take it easy, you know, when you're having hard days. I don't usually say things like that. So that uh, that one was a slip up. But it does clue me into like different things about what might be going on subconsciously in my brain. This is such a side tangent. Uh, <laughs> what I was trying to say was if you're here, I assume you're here for the psychology, for the self-improvement, all that good stuff. Uh, because there really would be no other reason to be here, honestly. But anyway, uh, we're talking now about how to heal attachment issues. Um, and I, I took some suggestions from different kinds of lists and, you know, it kind of, the way it's written, I tried to include uh, things you can do instead if you are not in a relationship, but it's kind of just written as if you're in a relationship that's having problems anyways. So that was a difficult one for me. Um, but, you know, if we're going to get into it, I want you to know, you may be struggling now with an insecure attachment issue, but it doesn't mean you have to forever. You don't have to do that forever. There is hope for change. And so talking about, you know, the things that will get you to that change, the first thing is to identify your particular attachment style. And I hope if you've gotten this far, you at least have a couple ideas to Google if you don't uh, <laughs> know already. But um, you've, yeah, you've got to identify it. You need to stay non-judgmental of your style. Don't look at it and think, oh, what would other people think if I told them this? You know, you don't do that. Look at it and say, ah, I identify with this or I identify with these parts of these different types of attachments and you just have to become really familiar with what they involve and um, I've tried to give you a pretty good overarching summary but I will be providing a few links in the description about uh, where to start reading about attachment issues where can you go to just start learning about them. 
Um, but even like Googling your style and say like healing afterwards, that's, that's a good idea, I think, where you can just Google it and start learning about who you think you might be on the inside where you don't really notice. Um, but yeah, just really familiarize yourself with the, the things that are related to your attachment issues. Um, and if you have blended styles, if you have like more, like two of them or something, um, study both and focus on the elements of each style that seem to be more you. Just like, this feels like something I would do. Or, oh yeah, I've done that before plenty of times. You know, you've got to, you might want to make a list, you know? And you just, you just got to read up on it, you know? Uh, knowledge is powerful. And then another thing you want to do if you're in a relationship is to get familiar with your partner's attachment style. Um... This way your partner can join you on the journey of healing attachment wounds, which I find to be absolutely beautiful and romantic, uh, very much. Uh, but you know, they may choose not to do that. They may not be ready to accept their attachment issues, but if they're willing, couples therapy is a great idea you know, getting, getting right into it. Couples therapy, talking about attachment styles in there. That's a great, great resource. And if, you know, they're not willing to do that with you, I mean, and I will say it shouldn't be the first go-to. Try reading up on it. Try learning about it. Try existing. And then when it still sucks, <laughs> then you say, okay, what about couples therapy? Um, but if, if your partner does not want to do therapy, um, just kind of be aware of their attachment style and the parts that apply to them from what you can see and how that plays into arguments that you're, you currently have, you know, when you finish an argument and you've, you know, walked away from it or settled it or whatever, think about how all of the attachment things came into it, you know? Um, and also if your partner's not uh, wanting couples therapy, or even if they are, I mean, therapy is expensive, but like you can always get a trustworthy therapist with an expertise in attachment therapy. Um, you Just a, a reliable trustworthy therapist that makes you feel comfortable and I'm gonna do it just a reminder if you've never heard me rant about this before you may have to try a few therapists to find the right one you're not gonna walk into an office and sit with the person and immediately click like well you can actually like some people do some people do um but, you know, if you're dealing with something that's very specific and the person doesn't specialize in that, it might not be a great fit. Also, like, if you feel uncomfortable, if they ask you questions that make you uncomfortable, um, 
I mean, that's part of the job, but usually a good therapist will help you realize why you need those questions. You have to be pretty self-aware for this too. Um, but yeah, try a few therapists. Switching back and forth, that's another thing. I hear from a lot of people that, oh, I can't leave my therapist. I would feel so bad. They'd hate me. They'd They'd be so mad at me or they would feel like I just hated them or, you know, all these weird conspiracy theories. Uh, therapists just want to help you. And we are, <laughs> I said we, I'm not a therapist yet. Therapists just want to help. And they are very aware that not every person who walks into their office will remain a client for an extended period of time. Therapists aren't going to be mad. They're not going to be mad. It's part of the job. They're not going to be offended either. Seriously, they're not. They're, it, that's not a thing, you know, and therapists will often joke, well, our job is to work ourselves out of a job, which is very true when you think about it and hilarious. Um, maybe I just have a low threshold for humor, but, uh, <laughs> you know, like, you're working so hard to make this person feel so much better. And then when you've succeeded and you've made a big achievement, they just fucking leave. They just get up and fucking leave and they don't, you'll never see them again, you know? So, uh, therapists are working to put themselves out of business is what, what it truly is. Um, just, they don't, they're not going to care if you don't want to work with them anymore if it's a real problem and you can't say it to their face, you can't do it through a phone call, try calling like the secretary at the place they work. You know, if they have their own like office or if they work in a big building with lots of other therapists, call the front desk and just be like, hey, I don't want to tell them, but like let my therapist know I'm not going to be working with them anymore. You don't want to just ghost them, but just let them know I'm not going to be here anymore. Okay, enough ranting about therapy and therapists and therapisty things. Um, it's a good thing to like have a therapist um, if you're dealing with attachment issues, if it's currently affecting your life. It's also good to have a therapist just in general. But um, we're going to move on to the next point, which is journaling. Again, such a me thing. That That's just, ah, that's me. Um Self-reflective journaling can be really powerful, but be compassionate and non-judgmental of yourself. So an example of what you could do while you're journaling is you could take time to journal 10 benefits of your attachment style, the upsides, 10 of them. Then when you've got that done, sit it down, go do something else for a minute, come back, and then write 10 downsides of your attachment style. And those will probably come a lot easier and you won't have to sit and think so much. But that's just one that was on the, one of the websites I was looking at. Um, but you can also find journal prompts for healing attachment wounds online. I have worked, I have done so much research for this podcast I kind of just got to the point at the end where I was like, I'm just gonna, uh, I wanted to 
link um, good journal prompts for healing your particular attachment style. Um, and it was really hard to find particular styles. And then that made me realize that you guys needed it even more because you wouldn't be able to find it on your own. So I put some in the description, but I'm not going to say they're good. I'm not even going to don't don't judge me if they're they're totally off. <laughs> um, another good thing, like the next step, once you've done the self-reflective journaling, um, you need to start noticing your triggers. When you get triggered, write it down um, or type it out in your phone. Um, the notes, again, should be non-judgmental, non-critical, be very kind, even even just like neutral, like no good or bad, this is what happened. And if you can kind of tell what exactly uh, caused it, what, what action made you freak out, well, you didn't necessarily freak out, but to get triggered, um, you want to put that down too. You're going to write that out. And then the more you practice this and keep track of your triggers, um, the easier it will be to work toward healing. And if you're not in a relationship, you can do this for past relationships. Anything triggering that's ever happened, you know, um, that gets a little more general. But especially in the relationship sphere, um, yeah, any, any relationship will do. Then the next step we're kind of building momentum now is finding your wounds so you're gonna do this keeping track of of all your your triggers and what triggered you and then when you come to this stage you're gonna look back at what you're you've written down about what triggers you where are the patterns and themes running through it you'll see probably a few repeating lines of thought in the triggers and these will lead you to find the core attachment wound. Some examples are fearing intimacy. Maybe you just are scared of being intimate with someone. Or maybe you feel unloved constantly. And another one is worrying about rejection. If you're so afraid to be rejected once again, that, that can be hard. That can be really hard. Those rejection issues, man. Let me tell you, they hurt. <laughs> you might notice a theme of feeling triggered when your partner does not show you enough attention. This would tell you that one of your core wounds is not receiving sufficient love and connection. You're, you're going to get closer and closer to what that core wound is. Yeah, so if you're triggered when your partner doesn't show you enough attention. Your core wound may be not receiving sufficient loving connection. Maybe you didn't get that from your parents. And now every guy that you try to fill the void with, you know, is just chilling on his phone, not really ignoring you just in the middle of something and you freak out and then you realize, oh, that was because of this. Another example you might realize that you often criticize your partner and set off conflicts. And this might tell you that one of your core wounds is not knowing how to connect in a loving, intimate way. 
you fear the loving and intimate ways. And so you stir the pot. The goal is compassionately identifying your wounds and increasing your self-awareness. And we've done an episode on self-awareness. Um, and it had tons of tips on how to increase your self-awareness. Um, so if that's something you think sounds a little hard and scary, maybe go check out that episode. The next step in this journey of healing is know your needs. So you journal about your triggers and your wounds, you know, these things. We've we've been writing them all down the whole time, right? Um, And this may lead to finding like a specific event or like a practice that was normal in your childhood. You're going to explore each of the wounds themes by journaling about how this affected you in childhood and then progress to how they affect you now currently. This will definitely lead to more self-awareness about what you need in a relationship and you can share with your partner the wounds and their effects on your current life so they can help you heal and they can know exactly what you need from them. Then we're getting we're getting into the pretty hard stuff. You've got to start stating your needs. And yes, I mean making boundaries. (laughs) I do. Um, But it's very empowering. You will find empowerment through acknowledging and stating what you need. So, you know, it's a process. First, you bring it in your brain, you acknowledge it, and then saying it out loud to the person needing to hear it. Stating it out loud is another step. And then Also, like if it goes the other way around, someone's triggering you or whatever, um, rather than getting reactive, stay calm and state to your partner your needs so they can support you and understand your, your wounds and your needs. So learning to just calmly and respectfully, not yelling and screaming at people, but calmly and respectfully stating your needs, saying this is something that I need from you and I I expect that you will be receptive to that. Are you receptive to that? Are you, are you okay with that? You know, because dating doesn't just like stop when our brain is like not developed. You know, you're going to be dating at 20 to 30 years old and, you know, it's... If you know your needs, that's great. That is so great. Tell them, tell your partner, all of them. Once you get serious, be like, okay, I've got this thing. I have this little list of things I need from you. Maybe it's something simple like, I need to hear you say, I love you often or occasionally. I need a kiss every day when I'm going to work. When I leave for work, you've got to give me a kiss. Um... And like, of course, there are like exceptions for everything, but, you know, just state your needs. I need someone who will talk to me calmly when I'm having a freak out. I need someone who can show up for me emotionally when I'm upset. You know, there there are tons of different needs different people have. Those are some random examples I just came up off the top of my head and they were not in my notes at all. Seriously, they weren't. 
Um, so yeah, you're going to have to set that boundary of these are my needs and you need to respect them. And then the next step is just called holding your boundaries. In an ideal situation, your partner would want to work with you, but sometimes it's possible partners can respond unhealthily. They can freak out over it. They can lose it. Maybe they've got their own attachment issues, you know, and then you suddenly throw this at them. Um, or they could be the asshole that chooses to provoke you. Like, oh yeah, I got it. No, no, okay. These are your needs. I got you. I got you. And then like next time he's upset, he passive aggressively triggers you on purpose. Um, and, and anytime someone triggers you after you've already discussed what your needs are, you need to restate those needs and hold the boundary. And I will tell you, girl, guy, them, they, I will tell you all, if someone is not willing to rise up and meet you where you're at and help you through a hard situation, you think they're going to be a long-term partner? Is that is that the kind of relationship you want? Do you want to feel like they are not, they don't care enough? I don't think so. I wouldn't. I would not. I would not. And you know, when my wife and I got around to stating our needs years back um, in couples therapy, you know, he, I told them the need and I would explain like, you know, it has to do with this and it's, it's something that happened in my childhood, if you want to be vague, and it's causing me to have a really bad reaction when you do X, Y, Z. So please don't do X, Y, Z. That, that would be a good stating of your boundaries. But if they've already, if we've already talked about the needs, it may be as simple as they forgot or they got triggered themselves. But if they trigger you, you need to be like, hey, we talked about this. These are the needs. These are the boundaries and I am sticking to that. And sometimes people just got to go. That's a good way to figure out if they got to go because who, if, if they're triggering you on purpose and, you know, maliciously or, um, passive aggressively or however, that, that's not healthy and you need to rethink that decision anyway. Um, to wrap it up, we're going to say the last step is conscious wound repair, meaning you are consciously repairing your wounds. Um, and really all that they, they blabbered on a little bit about some stuff in uh, the article I was using. But really just following the steps outlined above, um, involving your partner, if that's something you can do, or you, if you have a partner, um, it all, it definitely is something you can do on your own. You don't have to be with a partner to understand what your triggers are. You get triggered every day. Look at your parents. If you still live with your parents, what's the difference? Like, are they triggering you? Do they have... Things they do and say that trigger you. Because, I mean, that might even be easier to figure out 
than looking at an adult relationship and relating it to when you were a kid because it's still your parents. I don't know. But either way, if you have a partner, you will grow together. This will bring you closer. And the more you understand your own or others' wounds, it's, it's, it's a beautiful process, the healing process. Once you can recognize your own wounds and work on them, like, that is what I look for in a partner. <laughs> uh, emotional availability, intellect, and willing to work on their bullshit. Because I'm going to tell you, everybody has bullshit. Everybody does. And no matter how old you get, no matter how far away it gets, no matter how much healing you've done, you're always going to have to heal something again pretty soon. Um, which sounds a little hopeless, but honestly, I'll go ahead and just blabber because we're at the end of the episode. You know, you heal something in your life. And life is kind of like a, a circle, a cycle. And you will go through that problem again and again and again until you've healed it. And then once it's healed, sometimes it still doesn't go away. You might come back around. This may be attachment issues. This may be financial issues. This may be spiritual issues. There's just, for a lot of people, there's a repeating thing that happens. It just seems like you, you've you done the work and you thought it was good and it was better and now it's back. And that's not your doing. That's literally just how we work as people in the universe. One thing will cross your path and, oh, that was hard. That was a big rough one. And then you come back around and it hits you again. And you say, oh, oh, that that's familiar. Uh, wh- wow, why do I feel this way? I thought I was healed. And you kind of stumble your way through it. But what you'll notice after a while is that every time you hit it, you've already built up the experience of every other time. And so when you hit that rough spot in the road, you can be prepared. You can say, okay, this is going on. I know to do this. I, I learned in therapy about this. I read about a book in this. And and you can go much quicker through those painful parts of your life. And yeah, today's episode was pretty, pretty somber, pretty serious. Um, you know, if you're struggling... I really hope that you are willing to do something about it. If you're struggling and you have no one to go to, you can always call like a crisis line. You know, I'm going to plug that because I think that could help a lot of people. Or if you're just kind of, you know, if you have friends and family, you can reach out to them. If you have a partner, you can reach out to them. I just hope you're you're doing okay. I really hope you're doing okay. If you're on Spotify, there's a a response. What do you think about this episode? Little thing, and you can type in there uh, what you thought about the episode. And if it helped you, I would love to hear that. I would love to hear that. But also, like, if it brought up some issues that you never realized, tell me. I'd love to hear about that. If you don't listen on Spotify, you can also email me at my email address, uh, alistrange.magicinthemind at gmail.com. Uh, 
it'll be in the description. And, you know, you, you can email me about anything. I would love right now to hear a million episode ideas. Like, just all the things. All the things. Hit me with all of them. I don't know. I feel like I'm just your little invisible sibling patting you on the back saying, it's okay. Don't be all right. I'm also intuitively getting that someone's pretty upset. Um, they feel pretty young. I think they're a male. But anyways. Anyways, I love you, darlings. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I hope you're doing okay. I hope everything in your life is nice and cozy, getting ready for the holidays. If you're hearing this live, uh, well, not live, but as it comes out. Um, yeah, I just want to encourage you, always stay curious. Always stay curious. Bye, my friends. Hello, everybody. This is post-editing Alice. Just wanted to come on here and, uh, state the obvious after listening to and editing this podcast. Um, my speech issues at the time were a little more serious than I realized, and yeah, I'm, I'm actually going through a medicine change, uh, going onto something and off of something else, and, and that's, uh, got me having issues with stuttering, slurring my words together, uh, making long pauses in between sentences, but, uh, I do want you to know I'm okay. I'm not sick. I'm not, uh, losing my mind only a little bit, but like not for real. Uh, just wanted to let you all know, and I hope you guys still were able to enjoy the episode.